Thomas Junta was a 44-year-old truck driver and a hockey dad from Massachusetts. In 2000, he was convicted of manslaughter in the beating death of another hockey father. It happened at a pickup hockey game that involved the sons of both men. Michael Costin was an informal referee at that pickup game, and Junta became extremely angry at how Costin was policing the on-the-ice roughness of the game. So Junta ran out onto the ice, pinned Costin to the ground, and punched him repeatedly. Costin was a single father raising four children, and as a result of that beating, he died the next day. A dozen children witnessed that beating. Michael Costin's son, 14-year-old Brendan Costin, described that conflict and said, quote, I still remember being hysterical, trying to wake him up as the blood streamed down his face. I realized I had just witnessed my dad literally beaten to death. Junta's own attorney, Thomas Orland, said, this killing is considered the worst example of sideline rage. He also acknowledged that his client had become a national symbol of parental rage. It is said that 60% of all homicides, meaning all unjustifiable homicides, committed in the U.S. are between people that know one another but don't know how to manage their anger. On an annual basis in the U.S., more than four million women are beaten because men don't know how to manage their anger. On an annual basis, more than 10 million children are abused because a parent didn't know how to manage their anger. The magazine Psychology Today has called this society the, the age of rage, and it is. There are two basic classifications of anger. The first classification is anger minus sin. Anger minus sin. A sinless anger. Some call this a righteous anger or a righteous indignation. This is found in Ephesians 4 verse 26. Notice, be angry. And that's an injunction. Be angry and do not sin. The statement is made that sometimes we are supposed to be angered. We are expected to be angered sometimes. But that anger is not to contain sin. Understand that not all anger is harmful or wrong or sinful. If it was, then God himself would sin each time he is angered. And there are numerous biblical examples where God is angered. One of the first examples of that divine anger was the global flood found in Genesis 6 through 8. Other than eight select people, God drowned the entire human population that, because of extremely long lifespans prior to the flood, could have numbered in the billions. God drowned them all. That was a global demonstration of righteous indignation. Genesis 19 records the tragic account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and its sister cities, there were five cities altogether, those cities had been situated on a fault line on the eastern side of a plain just south of the Dead Sea. There is in that region substantial evidence of subterranean deposits of a petroleum-based substance called bitumen. Bitumen or bitumen. It's similar to asphalt. That substance also contains a high percentage of sulfur. At God's command in judgment on those cities, the rift ruptured probably from an earthquake and it spewed up great quantities of liquid. The bitumen deposits and gaseous hydrocarbons were thrown high up into the atmosphere. That combination ignited and fell to the earth as a burning fiery mass and literally covered that entire region with fire and brimstone, as stated in the biblical record. 
All those cities were crushed and burned, just as the Bible describes. Total population estimates from those cities range from one half million to more than two million people. And there were no survivors. Contrary to the LBGTQ deceitful twist on that narrative, that devastation transpired because God was upset and angered at Sodom's sexual perversion. The examples of divine anger continue from the ten plagues across ancient Egypt to Jericho's collapse and implosion to the annihilation of other Canaanite cities and on and on and on. Notice Isaiah 30 verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue like a devouring fire. That language sounds like an intense emotion. A gentleman, I'm sure I'll, I'll mispronounce his name, Maroslav Yuvov, is a theologian from Croatia. He is now a professor of theology at Yale Divinity School. I cannot comment on his discernment in all things, since he does teach at a less than conservative seminary. But I can comment on one thing, and I found this insightful. He confessed that earlier on, he used to reject, categorically reject, the concept of God's anger. He felt the idea of God being upset and angered was completely barbaric. God being angered, he said, seemed inconsistent with a God that claims to be loved. And then his nation experienced a brutal war. And people started committing terrible, inhumane atrocities against one another. In his book entitled Free of Charge, he shares how that, that war... Witnessing that war brought about a change in his understanding of God's anger. He said this, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and more than 3 million were displaced. Villages and cities were destroyed. People were shelled day in and day out. Some of them were brutalized beyond imagination. And after seeing all that, I could not imagine God not being angry. He commented on Uranda, where in the last decade from the past century, some 800 thousand people were hacked to death in 100 days. Let me paraphrase him. How did God react to that carnage in Rwanda? Through doting on those murderous perpetrators as a grandfather would dote on his grandchildren? No. Would God react through refusing to condemn that bloodbath, but instead affirmed those perpetrators' basic goodness? No. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? He said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's anger and wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the world's evilness. Don't miss this. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because... God is love. How true is that? Then the New Testament records the God-man, meaning God in human form, the God-man, Jesus Christ, also manifested this form of sinless divine anger. In Mark 3, verse 5, Jesus, it is said, was angered in the synagogue because some Pharisees had hardened their hearts toward God. In Mark 10, Jesus was angered at his disciples because some of those disciples didn't want small children coming to Jesus. 
Understand, one of the fastest means to encouraging divine anger in Jesus is to abuse a child. And neglecting a child is also a form of child abuse. Those irresponsible actions and inactions are going to solicit a severe response from Jesus 100% of the time. Mark 10, verse 13, Then they brought little children to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. Notice, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Meaning the disciples had the attitude, get those kids out of here. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Notice, not he was displeased, he was greatly displeased. And said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verse 16, and he took them, meaning the little children, took them up in his arms, laid hands on them, and blessed them. Jesus cared about children, as he does now. Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, meaning whoever causes a child to commit sin, and that would describe the twisted evilness of a pedophile, he said it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. A millstone was a large stone used to grind grain. Most often a millstone was sizable enough to require an animal such as a donkey or a horse to pull it. So a millstone that size hung around someone's neck that was tossed overboard would go straight to the bottom of the sea. The Gentiles at that time uh, actually used that technique to execute someone. The victim would be dead before he hit the bottom. Jesus said those that abuse children will face a more severe punishment, will face a worse punishment than being dropped into the sea wearing a millstone necklace. Modern societies would consider that cruel and inhumane punishment, but people, that's an example of God's actual anger. And it is anger minus sin. Matthew 21 records how Jesus cleansed the Jerusalem temple. He did that on two different occasions. He overturned the tables of the money changers. Money changers were men that exchanged Greek and Roman coins for the Jewish coins needed for the temple offerings. The problem was, that was a legitimate exchange. The problem was, though, those money changers charged a hyperinflated rate of exchange. And in doing that, ripped the people off. And that angered Jesus. Jesus was also angered at the religious echelon of his time because he said to them repeatedly in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! He even called them whitewashed tombs and snakes. And those weren't endearing words. God is angered. God is angered at actual injustice, not fabricated injustice. God is angered at actual racism, not contrived racism as per the critical race theory. God is angered at abortion. God is angered at some of the foolishness that is political correctness. God is angered at pride and drunkenness and pornographic websites. God is angered at the escalating crime rate. God is angered at ignoring the poor and selfish materialism and greed. God is angered at the constant lies and misrepresentation from the media. God is angered at socialism, Marxism, and communism. God is angered at unethical business practices and human trafficking. God is angered at the gross spiritual ignorance and indifference that characterizes the modern church. And understand, God in this anger is justified. This is a justifiable anger. It is a righteous anger. It is anger minus sin. So we're going to focus this morning 
on this first classification of anger. The second classification, we're saving until next time. Our focus this morning is on divine anger. And that is anger minus sin. And we want to answer a, a most controversial question. This is a serious question. Christians are considering more and more as evilness is on the increase and things are literally falling apart around us. Question, as a Christian, is it appropriate to pray imprecatory prayers? As a Christian, is it acceptable to God for us to pray imprecatory prayers? Imprecatory praying is probably unfamiliar to most of us. So notice the definition on the note sheet. Imprecatory praying means to invite God to bring down a curse or misfortune and judgment onto someone and or someone's. Imprecatory praying means to ask God, petition God, request that God bring down a curse or misfortune and judgment onto someone and or someone's. There are certain psalms that are considered imprecatory prayers where David imprecates and calls down from God destruction and judgment on his enemies. Some of the more common imprecatory psalms are Psalm 5, Psalm 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, and 140. There is, though, a more comprehensive list of imprecatory psalms at the end of this note sheet. Let's read through some of these, just a sampling of imprecatory psalms. Psalm 5, verse 10. Again, David is praying this. Pronounce them, God. Pronounce them, them meaning David's enemies. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Psalm 19, 17, pardon me, and verse 9 and 13. Verse 9, from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me, verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked. How? With your sword. Meaning, someone dies. Psalm 35, verses 1, 4, and 8. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Verse 4, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Verse 8, let destruction come upon him unexpectedly and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. Psalm 55, verse 15. Let death seize them. Let them go alive down into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Psalm 69, verse 24. Pour out, again, he's speaking all of this to God through prayer. These are requests. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Notice in these instances, David is appealing to God's righteous anger. Psalm 83, starting at verse 13, O oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them, with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. I must admit I've prayed this next psalm about more than one politician. 
Psalm 109, verse 8, let his days be few and another take his office. Amen? Amen. I'd be a better president, just for the record. Psalm 140, verse 8. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Meaning, don't give, don't give them what they want. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they shall be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. These are just some Just some examples of imprecatory praying where David prayed down a curse and judgment, severe judgment on his enemies. In addition, other Old Testament prophets such as Hosea, Micah, and Jeremiah also used imprecatory language. Then some New Testament characters also practiced this imprecatory praying. Jesus himself quoted the imprecatory psalms and the biblical references are mentioned on the note sheet Luke Luke who authored the gospel of Luke and its sequel Acts Luke also quoted imprecatory psalms Paul also quoted imprecatory psalms there are other examples of New Testament imprecatory praying the familiar disciples prayer most often called the Lord's prayer Uh, is found in Matthew 6. Notice Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus said, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. People, that's imprecatory praying. Because to invite God's kingdom and reign on this earth is to invite divine judgment on all other human kingdoms and invite judgment on all those that oppose the reign of God. Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, this and this scene is transpiring in heaven as the tribulation period is happening on the earth. When he, Jesus, described here in this text as the Lamb, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. Unsaved people left behind after the rapture will have opportunities to receive Jesus. And some will do that. We know a record number of Jewish people do. According to Revelation 7, there will be 144,000 Messianic Jewish evangelists crisscrossing the earth preaching about Yeshua. But most people in that tribulation that become Christians are martyred. Most of them die for their faith. Antichrist will have Christians beheaded. That will be the predominant means of execution. In Revelation 6, these are the souls of martyred Christians, martyred during that tribulation and are now in heaven. And notice all of them are in essence praying and requesting something from God. Notice what it is. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice. People, uh, often if someone raises their voice to an unusual decibel level, it's an indication that someone is desperate. This is a desperate cry. Saying, How long? How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Avenge means to inflict harm on someone in return for a wrong committed against ourselves and or someone else. This avenging is the same as vengeance. Romans twelve nineteen reads, For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
So through imprecatory praying, these martyrs in heaven are asking God to do what God said He would do, and that is to enact justice and vengeance on those that persecute His people. This past Sunday I mentioned Revelation 22.20 that reads, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And then the human author John who heard that, responded, Amen, even so come Lord Jesus. We have mentioned often that we ought to pray that same prayer. Even so come Lord Jesus. Do we understand that in praying that prayer, we are praying an imprecatory prayer? Because in asking Jesus to return, we are essentially soliciting judgment from Him. After Jesus returns to rapture us, from off this earth. He then judges the earth's inhabitants through this 84-month-long tribulation period, also called Daniel's 70th prophetical week, as we said last time. Then after that tribulation, Jesus returns to the earth and judges Antichrist and his armies at Armageddon, causing another 400 to 500 million casualties. And then after that, At the great white throne judgment, Jesus judges the entire unsaved population from all time and assigns them to the eternal hell called Gehenna. All of that is contained in that prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's imprecatory praying. On a personal basis, I believe personal imprecatory praying is still sometimes permissible. To pray that God would execute judgment on evildoers is still permissible, I believe, under certain conditions. I should confess, um, your pastor is not perfect. Uh, I sometimes don't have the best attitude about certain people. Um, I would love to send George Soros an imprecatory greeting card. A card that reads, I am praying that the fleas from a thousand camels infest your sleepwear tonight. Okay, that's not severe, but irritating. Um, That's imprecatory praying. Imprecatory praying light. Mr. Soros is an atheist. He is against all that we believe as Christians, and he has contributed some $32 billion to causes that are committed to the destruction of this nation, and people, that angers me. A relevant question. Do we pray down judgment and death and a divine curse on the Taliban? A woman who had been a police officer in Afghanistan before escaping after the Taliban insurgents into Kabul said, Militants are going house to house, searching for women to be abducted and sold as sexual slaves. And Taliban men are raping women. The Taliban are beating women for wearing, pardon me, beating people, men and women, for wearing Western clothes. One woman was executed because she didn't wear a burqa. Another woman was accused of bad cooking for the Taliban fighters, so she was set on fire. And this just recently, an Afghanistan woman was beaten, 40 lashes with a heavy scourge. Her crime? She had spoken to a man on the phone. She was on her knees in this video in the middle of a group of Taliban men that were there to witness the punishment for her, quote, immoral actions. In between beatings and the cries from pain, this woman is heard saying, I repent, it's my fault, I messed up. But none of that mattered. She was still beaten. And the human atrocities just continue. Christians in Afghanistan have been forced underground and Christians are executed if caught. There is no toleration for Christianity in that state. The fact is we have permitted a bunch of 7th century Islamic thugs to push us around 
and literally run over the supposed greatest human fighting machine ever assembled. And because of this massive theft in Afghanistan, our tax dollars have been used to equip the Taliban with billions and billions of dollars of weapons. No one, no one I have met questions the rationale behind pulling our troops from Afghanistan. Most people believe that should have happened some time ago. Some are of the opinion we should never have even been there. But how we have left Afghanistan is completely irresponsible. Afghanistan is now, due to our absence, becoming a terrorist state and a threat to this nation. And we have caused the death through this irresponsible pullout. We've caused the death of countless innocents, Afghans and Americans. And this administration will have left behind the largest hostage situation in our history. People, it's more than incompetence. It's criminal. It's wrong. So the question is, is it permissible to pray God brings down a precation? damnation, judgment on the Taliban? Is it permissible to pray that Taliban soldiers actually die? Is it acceptable to do that? The Taliban have been our mortal enemies. Mortal enemies are those enemies that hate us and will continue to hate us, always hate us. And the Taliban have been that to us since we invaded Afghanistan. So from a logical perspective, if we're justified in killing Taliban troops in combat, and I believe we are justified in doing that, then we're also justified in praying for either unconditional surrender on their part or for massive Taliban fatalities. That's the logical and, I believe, biblical conclusion. But some ministers and some denominations and congregations reject impregatory praying. Some believe the impregatory psalms were just, and I'm quoting, just examples of man's cold-blooded, malignant cruelty and his want for vengeance on his enemies. The popular pulpit commentary reads, quote, so with Psalm 35 and other impregatory psalms, they give us not God's precept, but man's defective prayer. So according to some commentators and theologians, impregatory praying is considered defective praying. We shouldn't do it. Even the esteemed author, C.S. Lewis, in his work entitled Reflections on the Psalms, caused the imprecatory psalms, quote, devilish and diabolical. And Mr. Lewis was entitled to his opinion, but he couldn't have been more mistaken. Remember, Lewis was a great novelist. He was not a theologian. In fact, not even close. The most go-to text these men and others use as a possible contradiction to imprecatory praying is found in Matthew 5. This probably sounds familiar. Matthew 5, starting at verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, But I, this is Jesus, say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Understand these verses we have just read weren't addressed to governments per se. Otherwise, the just war theory doesn't exist, and we're all expected to be Christian pacifists. No. These verses aren't about enemy combatants on a battlefield. In a justifiable war situation, our objective is not to love our enemies into submission, but to use lethal force to stop them. That is the nature of war. President Truman didn't violate these instructions from Jesus in signing off on the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. SEAL Team 6 was more than justified in assassinating the murderous, savage Osama bin Laden, although our current president opposed doing that. 
Law enforcement agencies aren't contradicting this text in prosecuting and then imprisoning convicted felons. These verses are addressing personal enemies, personal antagonists, and offensive people that bug and bother us. If the foreman on the job is mean and nasty and determined to harass us, and that is often the case, I don't understand corporations that promote incompetent people to positions of management. I don't get it. It happens all the time. He, uh, if this man forces unreasonable demands on us and slanders us to his boss, and if he mocks our Christianity, then Jesus said our response, our reaction to him is to love him. We are to love that foreman. We are to bless him, do good to him, and pray for him. In particular, pray for his salvation. But this isn't a cause for imprecation. We shouldn't request, that because he gives us a hard time, that God curse him and send him misfortune. God said to love our enemies. And we should. If those enemies, though, are an actual threat to our continued existence, uh, if those enemies are a threat... Uh, of doing seriously bodily harm to us, such as those threats from domestic and or foreign terrorists, if those enemies continue to resist God and continue to persist in wrongdoing and evilness, then I believe we have the right to do as David did and pray God's justice and judgment on them. The Taliban have existed since the mid-90s. Since then, there has been no, zero resemblance of repentance. And there is no, zero evidence there will ever be Taliban repentance. And that's the reason I can, in good conscience, pray for the absolute and utter extermination of the Taliban. And all that includes. Imprecatory praying is biblical praying. Sometimes, in some cases, we have permission from God to ask Him to smite our enemies. In conclusion, and for those who don't know, in conclusion means nothing. <laughs> Let me mention some statements about imprecatory praying. One, statement one. The imprecatory psalms represent just a small percentage of the book of Psalms and were reserved for specific, dire circumstances. Remember, Old Testament imprecatory praying, those prayers weren't intended to just stop the threat from God's enemies. Those prayers were sometimes intended to wish actual death on them. Death and destruction. And that's serious business because to die in an unrepentant state means eternal death separated from God. So imprecatory praying in some cases could mean we're praying that God sends someone to hell. That's a sobering thing to me. That's the reason we should use extreme caution if we're considering imprecatory praying. This isn't some video game that has no real tangible consequences unless you don't believe prayer matters. And if you don't, then why bother? Statement two. The imprecatory psalms seem to primarily focus on groups and not individuals per se. Groups and not individuals per se. God sometimes holds off his judgment on certain individuals because he's waiting for them in patience to come to repentance. During the first century, God exercised extreme patience and held off his judgment on Christianity's public enemy number one. He was a murderous man named Saul. And if we were alive at that time, we could have easily been tempted to pray down misfortune and death on Saul. But then Saul met Jesus. 
on the road to Damascus. He was converted and radically changed. He was assigned another name, and that name was Paul. He authored almost half the New Testament and became the greatest Christian to date. In Los Angeles in the mid-80s, I met a strange fundamentalist pastor who seemed to me to be a provocateur. Our conversation after meeting was superficial and short because I had heard about his antics earlier from reliable sources, so I, I didn't want that association. Turns out he was the radical I perceived him to be. In 1987, he made headlines because he prayed a public imprecatory prayer. He brought about 100 members of his congregation to stand in front of the downtown Los Angeles Federal Courthouse where he led them in a public prayer for the death, the death of certain pro-abortion Supreme Court justices. Understand something. Abortion is unacceptable. But praying for the death of Supreme Court justices is also unacceptable. We can pray for those justices to repent from that pro-death position. We can pray for those justices to experience true conversion to Jesus Christ. We can pray for their retirement or pray for their removal through some legal technicality. But in good conscience, if we intend on being biblical, we cannot, we should not, we dare not pray harm on them. I might add this man did ultimately retract that prayer and he issued a public apology, but the damage had been done. Statement three, the imprecatory Psalms didn't represent a personal vendetta, but demonstrated David's concern for God's holiness and justice to be executed on those that rejected God and persecuted his people. This was not a personal matter. This was done in defense of God and His holiness. His total motivation is found in Psalm 69, verse 9. Because zeal for your house, God's house, has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Meaning, the insults of those who have insulted God have affected David. Understand something in this imprecatory praying. David wasn't tossing a temper tantrum. No, this wasn't personal. He was angered because of what had been done against God. And this is important because if we personalize someone's insults, and someone's offense, and we become vindictive ourselves, then we're no better than the ones we're praying against. It's concerning to me that as Christians, we no longer come to the defense of God, His name, His reputation, and His holy standards. It's concerning to me, as Christians, we seem to tolerate more and more societal evilness. I just read about a self professing Christian who is also a stripper. She performs on the website OnlyFans. She has 953,000 followers. She made $1.8 million in 2020 stripping for Jesus. Except Jesus had nothing to do with it. She's publishing a book soon about religion and sexuality. And it's predictable that some naive, ignorant, and gullible Christians will purchase a copy. Trust me, there won't be an outrage from the church. We have gotten accustomed to this. So the question is, is our willingness to accept this, or is our willingness to just ignore this unacceptable immoral conduct due to a serious deficiency in our love for God and His reputation? Translated as, could our negative reaction 
toward the imprecatory Psalms be traced to the fact that we love men and their favor more than we love God and His favor? Number four, first pray for repentance on the part of God's enemies. But if there is sustained, continued, unrepentance, then pray for God's justice and judgment. Now sometimes we're mistaken. Remember Nineveh? The ancient Ninevites weren't all that different from the Taliban. Nineveh's inhabitants were Assyrian. And Assyrians were cruel and violent people. Assyrians were notorious for amputating a victim's hands and feet, gouging out eyes, impaling their captives. And still, all 600,000 Ninevites repented of that ruthless evilness. Who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? Nineveh, though, was a unique exception, as most ancient civilizations didn't repent. In most biblical cases, praying for divine judgment came, don't miss this, came after, only after, extended efforts on the part of the psalmist to call the enemies of God to sincere repentance. Let me repeat that. In most cases, praying for divine judgment on a people group came only after extended effort on the part of the psalmist to call that group to sincere repentance. Those enemies he prayed against weren't demonstrating cases of just momentary resistance toward God, but those people were exhibiting and demonstrating unrepentant, incessant, hardened, and callous defiance toward God. We are to love our enemies through praying for their thorough repentance. But if those same people are callous and hard and consistently refuse God, then our only recourse is to pray that God's judgment on them is full and fair. Statement five. I've listed some suggested imprecatory prayers. These are from a gentleman named Garrett Keel. He pastors a congregation in a Washington, D.C. suburb, and I just happened onto an article from him. I've read about his background. He has an excellent education. Uh, he, it seems, is conservative, a conservative evangelical. And these are his suggested imprecatory prayers. Notice, Father, honor your name that it can no longer be mocked by these evil men. Give them mercy or give them justice, but act for your name's sake. Father, let the world see your justice and do not allow evil to strut around anymore. Father, stop these wicked men so that our worship might be unhindered and uncorrupted. Father, convert these men or crush them so that you might receive praise for how you deliver your people. Father, help your people know that you are faithful to defend them so that they don't lose heart. And one more, Father, defeat your enemies so that they can see for themselves that you alone deserve to be worshipped. In Nazi Germany, there was a movement inside German Protestantism called the Confessing Church. This confessing church was created to stand in opposition to the government-sponsored efforts to unite all Protestant congregations into a single pro-Nazi German evangelical church. There was that movement, that effort, and this confessing church was created to resist that effort to unite churches under Nazism. The reason being that that would have been a false church, a counterfeit church. And one of the principal founders of that movement was a now famous Lutheran author, pastor and theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a strong anti-Nazi dissident, meaning he was outspoken. 
in his opposition to the genocidal persecution of the Jewish people. The Gestapo arrested him. And after imprisonment for 18 months, and then internment in a concentration camp, he was hung to death just before the war ended. His crime? He had been associated with a group of men that had conspired to assassinate Hitler. That assassination attempt was unsuccessful, but those conspirators were found, arrested, and executed, including Bonhoeffer. Question. Considering his outspoken and zealous antagonism toward Nazism, do you believe Mr. Bonhoeffer would have prayed down imprecation and judgment and death from heaven on the evilness that was Hitler and the Nazi regime? Do you believe he would have done that? That's a rhetorical question. There is no doubt he would have done that, as should all biblical Christians in those situations. Yes, I believe there is a time and there is a place for imprecatory praying. Would you bow your heads? Father, this is a hard subject. I know it's subjective to some degree. I know it's controversial. But I believe it's thoroughly biblical. I do pray right now for judgment, divine judgment, death on the Taliban. I pray, dear God, that there would be literally no residue left from the Taliban movement that the only mention of Taliban would be in the history books. I pray for their extermination. And Father, I believe I am biblically correct in doing that because they so hate you, defy you, and are against everything that you stand for. And they've hurt so many people. So God, I pray for that. I pray that you'll bring our Americans home, all of them, and not in body bags. Bring them home alive to their families. Bring home those Afghans who assisted them, helped them in that, in that effort in Afghanistan. Bring them safely, too, out of that terrible country. So God, this is bigger than any of us. It's actually much, much bigger than our president. And I think he's learning that. God, it's just a big thing, and only you can solve it, only you can change it. I don't know your plans. I don't know what's going to happen. But I commit all that to you. Help us, God, to understand what you want from us. It's rare. It's not going to happen often. But we should pray imprecatory prayers. Psalms, where David prayed, pronouncing a curse and misfortune and judgment on God's enemies. Help us to be courageous enough to do that. And I pray and I thank you in Jesus' name.